Father in heaven, let us hear of your steadfast love in Christ, for in you we trust. Make us to know the way we should go, for to you we lift up our souls. Deliver us from our enemies, O Lord, we have fled to you for refuge. Teach us to do your will, for you are our God. Let your good spirit now lead us on level ground. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in God's word to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Book of Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to read together the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. And also consider the catechism questions that we read as our responsive reading. So Ephesians chapter 2, beginning our reading at verse 1. And let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Uh, Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Well, we've come to the end of our consideration of the law through the Heidelberg Catechism. We've come to a place where we now look back on the study that we've done and kind of ask, what has the point been? Um, What has been the importance of taking all this time to look at God's law? Um, And I think questions 114 and 115 of the Catechism are very important for us for rightly understanding God's law, for rightly understanding why we put so much emphasis on the law, why we take the time to go through it, and how God's people are to understand it. Um, It asks two very important so what questions. Um, Having considered the law, can we keep all of these things perfectly? Um, And if we can't keep all these things perfectly, then why have we spent so much time talking about something we can't do? Uh, Two very practical questions, aren't they? Very important questions for thinking about the catechism, for thinking about God's law and how we are to live it out. Um, And I think we have really two beautiful statements of why we preach these things, why we teach these things, why we learn these things, and how we are to live these things. Um, we, we have these things set forth for us, and we have what is presented to us as a radical recovery of the biblical religion that was so lacking in the time when the catechism was written. Um, there was a very, very popular, powerful misunderstanding of how salvation and works related to one another. Um, there was a belief that you were saved by the work that you did. Um, Now, I know that's a ham-fisted way of putting it. Uh, There's a lot of subtlety to it, 
because everyone would have said, you don't do it alone, you need grace to help. Um, so no one is saving themselves alone by their work. They, they would have, wouldn't have said that you could do these things perfectly. Um, so it wasn't you working alone, it wasn't you working perfectly. It was popular saying during those times that to those who do what lies within them, God will, God will not deny his grace. Um, and so it, it wasn't expected that you would do it without grace. It wasn't expected that you would do it entirely alone. But you needed to do enough. Uh, you needed to do enough to make yourself acceptable to God. But to put it in our terms, we might say you justify, you're justified by being sanctified. Um, by doing what's acceptable to God, you become acceptable in his sight. Um, and so there was always something that you had to do in order to be saved, some use you had to make of God's grace, some work you had to perform. Um, and what that led to is to a lack of assurance. People didn't know where things stood between them and God. And unfortunately, the church at that time said, that's a good thing. As long as you're not assured, you'll know you still need to come to church. As long as you're uneasy, you'll still make use of the grace the church offers you. Because the Roman church is dripping with grace. There's grace everywhere. There's grace to be had, but you never know how much you need or how far along you are or whether enough has been done to make you acceptable in God's sight. And one of the real geniuses of the Reformation was to recover the biblical doctrine that said you cannot do enough good work to make yourself acceptable to God. There's nothing you can do to make yourself acceptable to God. And that's so important that that gets recovered, not just because of, you know, sort of high-flying theological ideas, but because of where the rubber really meets the road for people in this life. Because we understand the law by nature. The law is in us by nature. We understand how the law functions. We understand, do this and you will live. Um, it's the same reason it appeals to us if I'd gotten up here and said, now, if you want to keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, I'm going to give you five steps to do it. We would love that. And you would all get out your pencils to write it down because we're wired for law-keeping. You're, you're speaking my language when you begin to say that. Give me a list of things to do. Um, the problem is if I gave you, gave you five, you wouldn't do five. And if I gave you three, you wouldn't do three. And if I gave you one, you wouldn't do one. Because you can say the law in ten commandments, you can say it in two commandments, you can say it in one commandment, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, and we still won't do it. And the recovery of the glory of what God's word teaches is you can't do enough good work to make you acceptable to God. Your good works can't save you. And that's okay because God has saved you so that you would do good work. That's what the Bible teaches. You have to be saved to do good works. That's why at a fundamental level, you can't do enough good works to save yourself because it works the other way around. You actually have to be saved to do good work. Um, that's what God's word teaches. That's what God's word teaches us in Ephesians. You have to be saved to do good works. And I want to run through how Paul advances the argument in Ephesians 2 to help us understand that important truth. Um, what is the foundation for salvation and good works? How does it play out as Paul describes it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 2? How does salvation progress? Notice the order of how things happen in God's word. Um, 
you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked. You were dead. Um, you know, I always sort of think when we, when we talk about death, I, I kind of, my mind goes to the Christmas carol in Dickens, you know, Marley was dead. Um, dead as a doornail. Really dead. He said, you know, he begins by saying, you need to understand that he was dead if you really want to understand the story. That's kind of, it's a genius way of starting a story. <clears throat> and Paul says, what you need to understand if you want to understand the story of your life is that you were dead. Really dead. Um, and doing what dead people, spiritually dead people, do. You were dead in trespasses and sin, doing what dead people do, verses 2 and 3. Walking, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were spiritually dead and we were doing the things that spiritually dead people do. And we were objects of God's wrath because of it. Um, we were really dead, doing what dead people do, and then something happened. Something happened to radically change the course of our lives. Um, and it wasn't that I woke up one day and said, you know what, it occurs to me that I'm dead. Right? No, that's not how this progresses, right? This is all about us. The first three verses are about us, and it's bad news. We're dead doing what spiritually dead people do. And on account of doing what we do, we're enemies of God. We're rebels against him. We're under his wrath and condemnation. And then verse 4 contains those beautiful words, but God. I was dead doing what spiritually dead people do until God intervened. And why did God intervene? But God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We were dead doing what dead people did. Um, as Paul will describe it elsewhere in Titus 3, hating God and hating one another. And while we were in that condition, God who is rich in mercy loved us and made us alive in Christ. You see how Paul contrasts what we were and did and what God is and does. Um, we are alive because of who he is and what he's done, not because of what we've done. Because we were still doing dead and doing the dead things we do. When God intervened to make us alive, uh, that's the glory of what we read here. Raises us up. Takes us away from the world. Takes us away from the devil. Takes us away from sin. Takes us away from his wrath. By the interposition of his grace. And seats us in the heavenly places with Jesus Christ. We can't have a more radical change, can we? Than the change that's described in verse 6. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Nothing more radical could have taken place. God has intervened. God has saved. And why? So that we might be blessed. 
right? Verse seven, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I mean, we're, we're good reformed people here, so we've read these words a number of times. And the problem with the things that we read a number of times is we can pass over the magnitude of them. You know, sometimes I come to, to, to passages to preach and I, and I sort of wish I could go back to when I'd never heard it before so that it would strike me the way it would strike. I'm glad that I've heard it before. I realize that's a blessing. But I sometimes wonder, you know, if I'd never heard that before, how would this strike me? And I always think about the people that heard that for the first time and how it struck them. Maybe if you didn't grow up in the church and didn't grow up in the faith, you remember clearly hearing things you'd not heard before and having that strike you. But why does God save us? Why does God extend mercy to us? What is his purpose in doing that? So that he might show forth the riches of his grace and kindness towards us. It's not to get some kind of return. He doesn't need anything from us. Um, All he's doing is he does it so that he might continue to show his kindness towards us. So that he would be glorified and glorified and good for us. That's one of, the, one of the great realities of the gospel is that God's glory coincides with our good. And the more good he does to us, the more he's glorified. And so he doesn't get anything from saving us. He saves us so that he might continue to show his glory, might continue to extend his kindness, might show us mercy in Christ Jesus. That's all to people who deserve nothing by someone who gives us everything. It's all of grace. It's all to his glory. It's all out of his mercy. It's all an expression of his kindness. He saves us so that he might show his mercy to us. And Paul makes the point powerfully that this comes to us by God's grace alone. That faith is the instrument by which we receive these things. It's the channel God cut so that all these glories may flow to us in Christ. But that even that is his work. Um, So even the faith that I have is not my faith. It's a gift of God that he's worked in me, not something I've worked in myself. It's not as if there's this wonderful, you know, ocean of his grace. And if I can just cut the channel to it, I can be a partaker of it. No, what the reality is, is faith is the instrument by which all of that flows to me, and God is the one who cut that channel and gave me that faith. I do the believing, but it's his gift. He gives it to me so that I can partake of all the glories of what are in Christ. Um, It comes to us by grace alone, through faith alone, and that not of works. Paul wants us to be clear, it's not of works. We have nothing to boast about in this. Right? All we were were the dead people doing dead people stuff. There's nothing to boast about in that. The only one who has grounds for boasting is God. The only one who gets the glory in all of this is God for saving people like us when we were dead in trespasses and sin. It's all of grace. It's all of Christ. It's all of God's glory. It's not by works. In fact, we know it can't be by works. Right? Because good works are just what we owe to God. Right? Love to God is what he's owed. And you can't, 
You can't pay someone what you owe them and then say, all right, now you owe me something. You say, no, you've now paid what, you're, what you were due. That, that just settles the bill. That sets it back to zero. That doesn't put me in your debt. And that's so often how we think of good works operating, that I can somehow do enough to put God in my debt. That if I'm pleasing enough to him, that I can actually put him in, the, in my debt. Or, or in the medieval formulation, right? You can be a saint that does so much good works that you actually did more than you needed. And you can deposit the extra in a treasury. And then us poor normal sinners can just come and, and, and draw on that treasury. But there's a treasury of merit that people earn up. But see, that, that avoids the whole teaching of Scripture that good works are just what we owe to God. That even if we were able to do perfectly according to his law, even if we were able to perfectly love him and love our neighbor, we couldn't then come to him and say, now you owe me something. Right? God would turn around and say, no, no, that's what you owed me by virtue of your creation. Right? Jesus taught that in Luke chapter 17, verses 7 through 10. Will any, of you, any one of you as a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. See, even if we could perfectly keep the law, we'd only be doing what's our duty before God to do. We couldn't take those things to him even if we could do them and say, now you owe me. And the problem is, not only could we not ever put him under our debt, but the best we do is not a perfect work. It's not acceptable to God on its own. And doing one wrong thing would negate the whole of the good we've done. Right? James teaches us that clearly in James 2 verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. You can't do enough good work to make yourself acceptable to God. You can't do enough work to put God under your debt. Um, that's not how it works. You don't do enough good work to be saved. You're saved for God's glory, that he might show his goodness to you, and so that you might show gratitude to him. Um, we're, we're saved for good works. That's how it works. That's the fundamental misunderstanding that so many people have. They get it exactly the opposite way around. You don't work to be saved. God saves you so that you can then do the work you were made to do. Do the work that's pleasing to him in his sight. Not to, not to earn something from him, but to express gratitude for such a great salvation. That's how Paul lays it out for us in Ephesians chapter 2. That's how it functions. I can't take credit for my work. I can't take credit for my faith. Everything I have is of the grace of God. And that's okay. That's the way God is pleased to set it up. That is glorifying to his name. And so many people will say, but if you really believe that, then what place is there for my good works? Well, well Paul makes a place for good works, doesn't he? But they follow salvation. They don't precede it. They follow salvation, they don't produce it. 
See how Paul talks about good works in regard to this wonderful passage on grace and faith? He says, for by grace you've been saved, in, in, in verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. Sometimes when we preach the doctrine of, of grace, soul rich and free, only from God, recipients of it by faith, and even that faith that's a gift of God, people will automatically ask us, well, where is your place for good works? Um, and, and here Paul says, there is the place for good works. We are, we are saved so that God might show his grace and kindness to us in Christ, the immeasurable riches of his grace. And so that we might do good works. But you see how the order is so important in the way it functions here. Say you have to be saved to do anything good. You have to be saved so that you can do good works. And we have to understand that relationship between salvation and good works so we can understand rightly how good works function. That good works are the fruit of our salvation. We sometimes like to say, in the Reformed camp, we are saved by faith alone, but never by a faith that is alone. That faith is always a fruitful faith. It's always accompanied by good works. And so while it comes to us from God alone, and it comes as a result of faith alone because of His grace and because of the finished work of Christ alone, it never is alone. It's always a fruitful faith. Why? Because we were saved for that. That's Paul's whole point in saying where his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And in that, there's a wonderful repetition of what God's will has always been for the people he made. He made Adam and Eve to do good works. He made Adam and Eve to love him and to love one another. That was the point of his creation, to make a good world in which everything functioned the way it ought to function. And of course, we wrecked that um, by believing the lie of the devil and departing from God, deciding to love the things of this world and the, the things that we saw more than the God we knew. Um, and we plunged ourselves into this abyss. And so this is the glory of what Paul's saying. God has worked a recreation. We've been recreated in Christ Jesus. To do What? To do what the first creation should have done if it had not departed from him. To love him and to honor him and to do those things not to earn something from him, but just as an expression of the love they had for a generous creator. That's how good works function in the life of a believer. They're not to earn us something. They're just, they, they serve as the opportunity for us to express gratitude for the God who's loved us and been so generous to us in Christ. We've been created to do good works, and good works flow from our gratitude. We've been saved to be a people who do good works. And so we have to keep those things in mind. How are we saved? By grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. Why are we saved? For God's glory. And so that we might glorify him in our lives. 
so that we might do good works, do the things that we know are pleasing in his sight. But you see how good works have to flow from salvation. They can't be the cause of it. Um, and we have to understand those things right. We can't, we can't get those things in the wrong order or we're bound to go wrong. Right? Apple trees produce apples. But if you have an apple in your hand and you look at it and wait for a tree to grow, it's not going to happen. You can go try it, but I'm telling you right now, it's not going to happen. Um, because things don't work that way. Right? It works the other way around, and it can't be reversed. Um, and that's how good works function. They're the fruit that flow from the saving work of God, not what produces salvation. And that's what makes biblical religion glorious and different than almost every other religion in the world, where you work to make yourself something you're not. But God comes along and tells us, I'm going to make you something you're not. Not by your good work, by my good work. Um, so that you will produce fruit and grateful service to me. Um, and that's why it's so important that when we think about God's law, we recognize right out of the gate, we cannot do these things perfectly. Question 114 is an important piece of practical wisdom for the Christian life. Because we've touched on the whole breadth and depth of the Ten Commandments, gone through and said, look, there's a whole host of things that God forbids. There's a whole host of things that God requires. And what's forbidden is deeper and wider than you thought it was. What's required is higher than what you thought it was. And so having gone through this law and seeing the seriousness of it, the, the scope of it, question 114 says, can you do that perfectly in this life? Can you do that perfectly in this life? And the answer is so important, right? The answer to question 114 is no. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of disobedience. Nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all not only some of God's commandments. Can you do all of this perfectly in this life? No. Right? No. We, we need to understand that. If you're not doing it perfectly, that's okay. That's to be expected. God's word tells us to expect it. Right? James says in James 3 verse 2 that we all stumble in many ways. All of us without exception. Um, we don't live these things perfectly. But there's a difference between saying you can't do something perfectly and that you can't do something at all. Right? We're not saying you can't do anything. What we're saying is you can't keep the law perfectly. Even the holiest of people make only a small beginning of this holiness. And what we're essentially saying there is you're never going to be as holy as Jesus. Right, because that's really the standard of perfection. You're never going to be as holy as Jesus. And the holiest person in this life has still come far short of Christ. Um, that's a reality. But that doesn't mean there weren't people who didn't make beginnings of holiness. Um, why don't we need to strive for perfection anymore? Because we're not, being, we're not trying to be saved by a perfect law. We're not perfect and that's okay. Because we're saved by grace. We're not perfect yet in this life. That's also an important reminder. We will be perfect. But just not in this life. 
But we will begin. We will begin in this life. And so I can know that as a Christian, that I won't be perfect, but I will make a beginning. I will begin, and I'll begin not to just live some of these laws, right? I'm not going to look at the Ten Commandments and be like, you know, I'm going I'm to shoot for a couple. That's probably the best I can hope to do in this life. No, what the encouragement of God's Word is the Holy Spirit is working us. We're going to begin to live according to all of them. We're going to make a beginning. That's good news. And that's good news because the only way we could make a beginning, given how we're described at the beginning of Ephesians 2, is by a divine interaction in our lives. Divine intervention to those who are dead in sin, walking under the power of the prince of the air. You can't make a beginning unless that's a divine work. And so we go through these Ten Commandments and we realize you can't live the law perfectly. It doesn't mean the next sin is inevitable. Um, We are to try to fight against sin all of our lives. We're not to use this as an excuse for laziness. But so many people are bowed down with doubt and despair in the Christian life because they are holding themselves up to a standard they can't possibly live up to. I talk to so many people whose assurance of, of salvation is assailed because their life isn't what they think it should be. And to them, I usually have to say, I usually say it more gently because I'm trying to be more pastoral, but, you know, welcome to the Christian life. A desire for grace is evidence of grace. As one of the Puritans said, we, we hunger and thirst for righteousness because we love the Lord and want to be holy and know we're not and we hate it. Right? You can't react like that to sin unless there's been a work of divine grace in your life. To want to be holy, to hunger and thirst after righteousness. That, that isn't there without the operation of the Holy Spirit. It's good news that we desire to be better. It's good news that we desire our faith to be stronger and our lives to be more glorifying to God. That's evidence of a divine working in our heart. There's a godly discontent that our lives are not better. And so we need to know that we can't be perfect, but we can make a beginning, and we're to strive to make the best kind of beginning we can make. That's, that's the goal of the Christian life. To know that I can't, I want to I shoot for perfection. That's, that's, my, that's what I set before myself. That's the example we're to set. I want to be like Jesus. I know I'm not going to attain that in my life, but I know I'm going to strive as hard as I can to do as much as I can, to make as best a beginning as I can to be like Jesus. And the glory is I don't have to do any of that to earn something from God. It's not because I'm afraid of a judgment if I don't do it. I've actually been set free from the fear of judgment because the law has lost the power to condemn me. But the law can't condemn us anymore if we're in Jesus Christ because he's died for our sins. He's already been condemned. The law can't condemn us anymore. That's that's why it's now a law of liberty for us. You ever really scratched your head over that description of James? How is the law a law of liberty? That's not how I feel about the law. Well, why does he say that? Why can we feel that way about the law? Because it's lost the power to condemn us. 
And when we default to our law-keeping mode in our minds and say, I'm pretty sure you do this and you live, or you don't do it and you die. I'm pretty sure I know that. That's when the gospel has to come in from outside of us and say, no, actually Jesus died because you can't keep the law. Jesus died for your lawlessness. And so actually the law has no power to condemn you anymore because the death that was required has already been offered. The death that was required, body and soul, for your sin has already been offered. And God is a just God. He doesn't require two punishments for the same crime. And, and that's a really freeing concept that God's people can come to to realize the punishment has already been meted out for my sin. There is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law has lost its power to condemn me. It's lost its power to condemn me. And I have a much more powerful motivation now than just the law preached to me externally. I actually have the Spirit writing it in my heart. Moving me to want the things that God wants and to do the things that God wants me to do. It's lost the power to condemn us. Um, It now is the rule for what is pleasing to God. That is so hard for us to get right in our minds. And we will continually throughout the Christian life try to default back to that old way of thinking. That's why we need the gospel preached to us constantly to remind us that's not the way things work anymore. Jesus has died. His sacrifice has put out the altar fire of God's wrath. There now needs to be no more further sacrifice for sin. The altar fire can be put out. You can pack up the tabernacle and throw it away. It's not needed anymore. Because all that it pictured is done. The blood's been offered. You can tear open the curtain. You can walk into the Holy of Holies because you've been made holy by the blood of the Lamb. There is no more condemnation now. We can't keep these things perfectly, but we we strive for them. We strive for them because God has made us His. That's now the motivation for doing what we do. Um, That's how Paul puts it in Philippians 3. What is my motivation to strive for? for the holy life. Listen how he says, not that I've already obtained perfection, uh, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Right? There's the motivation. I've been made Christ. That's why I live, strive to live a Christian life. I don't strive to live a Christian life so I can be made Christ's own. Paul says, that's already happened. I've been made his own. That's what motivates me. Now, that's why I strive to live a holy life. That's why I strive to make the best kind of beginning I can make. You see how that completely flips it on its head in terms of what we usually try to do? We're saying, I'm now not trying to earn anything from God. Christ has earned everything for me. I needed earning. Um, And he's given it to me as a free gift. I can do this now solely to glorify God. And that's why I like how question 115 then comes and says, okay, so if we've spent all this time on the Ten Commandments and you can't live the Ten Commandments perfectly, then what's been the point? That's really what question 115 is asking. Why did we take all this time? We took all this time to scrupulously outline how the law functions, what's required, and now you just said to me, I can't do it perfectly. So what's been the point? Why does God want the law strictly enjoined on a people who at best can only make a small beginning. 
And the answer to question 115 is very important as well, right? Um, why do we preach these things so pointedly? Why do we keep coming back to the law again and again? First, so that all our life long we may more and more come to know our sinful nature and thus more eagerly seek the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. The law keeps us from forgetting how far from perfection we are. It keeps us from thinking we've begun and done a lot more than we've done. Because just as we can easily despair, we can also easily be impressed with our meager holiness. And sit there like the Pharisee and go, thank you God that I'm not like the tax collector. Um, and you want to say to him, you've made a rotten beginning, buddy. You don't understand your sin at all. Right? The law keeps us from thinking we're better than we are. It keeps us from forgetting what debtors we are to the grace of God and how much we need his help and his forgiveness for what we do. Because we're, we're to fight against sin, we're to contest, we're to pursue holiness, but we're going to fail. Um, and the, and the, the scriptures relate to us all the time that way. Yes, you have to contest sin in your life. But you're going to fail and then the sin needs to be confessed and you need to know when you confess it that we have a God who's willing to forgive in Christ. So that you don't forget that there still is a Savior who saves. Right? I always think of John writing in 1 John 2 where he says, little children, I write these things to you so that you don't sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus the righteous, and he is a propitiation not just for us but for the whole world. So we're to contest sin and we're to confess it when we fail. We need the law to remind us how far from perfection we really are and how much we still need to appeal to God for forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. But We need the law preached to us for a second reason as well, uh, for the sake of our future life. Second, so that we may never stop striving and never stop praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit so that we may be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach our goal, perfection. The good news of the gospel is fighting against sin is not always a losing battle. Sometimes Calvinists can talk as if you're always going to lose against sin. That's not true. Um, we're not always going to lose against sin. We can fight that fight. Um, and we can prevail over sins from time to time. We're going to stumble in many ways, but that doesn't mean we're going to lose every time. Um, that's good news, right? And there's power to help us in that fight. We're not, we're not white-knuckling it on our own. We have the grace and help of the Holy Spirit. And that's why this question serves as an introduction into the next section on prayer. To remind us that if we're going to live Christian lives, we're going to strive against our old nature and seek to live godly lives, we're going to need the help of the Holy Spirit. We're going to need grace and the good news is there's a throne of grace where we can find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. And so we're to draw near to that throne and ask for help so that we might make the best beginning that we can make until we reach the goal after this life of perfection. Um, we can't be perfect in this life. We're always going to be fighting with sin in this life. Um, I like the Puritan who said, you know, We'll wear robes in heaven, but on earth you wear armor. And you have to sleep in the armor because you're always fighting. Um, that's the reality of the Christian life in this life. It won't always be a war. 
it won't always be a contest. There's peace coming. Because Christ is conquered. And when he appears again in glory, we will be perfected. And then we won't struggle for righteousness anymore. It will be a default way that we think and act is just to love God and to love our neighbor. It'll just be who we are. The struggle will be over. And that will be a blessed time. But until that time, we're called upon to pray, to struggle, and to strive, and to know that we'll overcome. Because Christ has overcome. And all who are in him will overcome with him when he comes again in glory. So that's what I wanted to say about this. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for teaching us so clearly in your word that our good works cannot save us. For certainly we would struggle and strive and despair if we tried to save ourselves by our meager works that are nothing more than filthy rags in your sight. Lord, we thank you that we don't need to save ourselves, but that when we were dead in sin and trespass, you saved us. And how thankful we are for your saving work. Might we meditate on what you've done for us and might that fill us with comfort and hope to know that we are saved that we don't need to do good work to save ourselves, but then might we be more and more encouraged to do those things that are pleasing in your sight that we might glorify you and show forth our gratitude for such a great salvation. Help us to strive and make a good beginning in this life, preparing ourselves for that glory that awaits us at the return of our Lord. So help us in these things, we pray. Fill us with your grace and spirit, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.